Hello all, my name is Madeline Keene. I'm thrilled to be presenting at this year's virtual Casebook Jack the Ripper conference. My presentation is entitled A Harlot's Progress, Intersectional Feminism and the Whitechapel Victims. The subject of this presentation is intersectional feminism and how it can be used to gain a better understanding of the Whitechapel victims' lives. I'll be starting with a quick introduction of intersectionality and a definition of intersectional feminism. From there, I will provide an explanation of how intersectionality can be used to study the lives of marginalized people throughout history. I'll then analyze the intersectional identities of the victims so that we can get a better understanding of how different types of oppression work together to affect their lives. From there, I will examine how different works may or may not have used an intersectional approach in their analysis of the victims' lives. There will be much focus on Hallie Rubenhold's book, The Five, since it has been promoted as a feminist analysis of the victims' lives, and I'll compare it to other works in the same vein. While researching and preparing for this presentation, I happened across this meme that Hallie Rubenhold shared on her social media. This is a fan-created meme and is clearly in reference to the controversial premise of Hallie Rubenhold's book, The Five. For those who are not familiar, in a nutshell, Ruben Holt claims that only two out of the five presumed Whitechapel victims were sex workers and that the victims were asleep when they were killed. The book is touted as the first book that has focused primarily on the lives of the victims from a feminist perspective. The meme also pokes fun at ripperologists and other researchers who do not agree with Ruben Holt's claims and have serious questions about her research and how she arrived at her conclusions. In my opinion, this is simply another effort on Ruben Holt's part to silence productive discussion and analysis of her work. Her encouraging fans to participate in this behavior is not a good look for an author. Something that my mom told me when I was growing up that your behavior only reflects upon you. You're the one who owns your behavior. Um, in this case, Ruben Holt is responsible for the things that she's doing right now. Um, and basically to paraphrase Maya Angelou, when people show you who they are, believe them. Said I'd like to turn my attention to this particular screenshot taken from an article in The Guardian. The article was written by Janina Ramirez, and the title is Top 10 Books About Women Written Out of History. This appeared on September 14, 2022. In this article, The Five is listed as the very first book, and um, Ramirez says about this, this book has done more for women's history than almost any other. Rather than continuing to fetishize the murderer, Hallie presents the victim's stories. By immersing readers in the social conditions the women experienced, the five have contexts other than being written off as prostitutes. This book has also affected the true crime genre, where more writers are focusing on victims rather than perpetrators. So when we see statements like the ones Ramirez made about the five in The Guardian, what should we be asking ourselves, especially considering that the five and the work that has come from it, like the podcast Bad Women, have been so popular? So these are just a few questions that were going through my mind as I was researching and preparing for this talk. Does Hallie Rubenhold's book, The Five, provide a well-rounded look into the victims' lives and the realities of their circumstances? Has it really done more for women's history than any other book, as Janina Ramirez states? How can we get a more holistic understanding of the victims' lives and the realities they faced? Have other researchers produced work that offers a comparable or even better look into the victims' lives than Ruben Holtz does? So I was thinking, how would we go about analyzing this? And the best way to answer these questions is to analyze the lives of the victims 
through an intersectional feminist lens. So what is intersectional feminism? What is an intersectional feminist? These terms have appeared in the media throughout the past few years and have really gained traction. But to get a clear idea of the concept, we need to start with defining the term intersectionality. Black feminists like Anna Jacobs, Polly Murray, and the Kambahi River Collective had been studying and writing about overlapping systems of oppression and discrimination for years. But it was scholar Kimberly Crenshaw who coined the term intersectionality. The term first appeared in her 1989 paper, Demarginalizing the Intersection of Sex and Race, a Black feminist critique of anti-discrimination doctrine, feminist theory, and anti-racist politics. Crenshaw's paper was concerned with examining different legal cases in which Black women had been victims of employment discrimination. In each of these cases, the courts only considered them to be victims of one form of discrimination. They did not re recognize how the identities of being Black and women both contributed to the discrimination the, victim, the plaintiffs had faced. As Crenshaw states on page 140, because the intersectional experience is greater than the sum of racism and sexism, any analysis that does not take intersectionality into account cannot sufficiently address the particular manner in which Black women are subordinated. Crenshaw also goes on to use this analogy to further explain intersectionality. The point is that Black women can experience discrimination in any number of ways. Consider an analogy to traffic in an intersection coming and going in all four directions. Discrimination, like traffic through an intersection, may flow in one direction and it may flow in another. If an accident happens in an intersection, it can be caused by cars traveling from any number of directions and sometimes from all of them. Similarly, if a Black woman is harmed because she is in the intersection, her injury could result from race discrimination or sex discrimination. There are also other forms of discrimination that we will discuss further, but this particular article mostly was concerned with race and sex discrimination in the context of Black women, mostly because Black women tend to be at the bottom of society and tend to experience the most discrimination when it comes to race and sex. Here are some further definitions of intersectionality that really elaborate on the points that Crenshaw has made and what she was trying to say. This one is from the Oxford English Dictionary. Intersectionality is a framework for conceptualizing a person, group of people, or social problem is affected by a number of discriminations and disadvantages. It takes into account people's overlapping identities in order to understand the complexity of the prejudices they face. From Merriam-Webster, we have intersectionality is the complex and cumulative way that the effects of different forms of discrimination, such as racism, sexism, and classism, combine, overlap, and intersect, especially in the experiences of marginalized groups. And I really liked this quote from Adia Harvey Winfield. She really sums up Crenshaw's concept in the best way. Kimberly Crenshaw introduced the theory of intersectionality, the idea that when it comes to thinking about how inequalities persist, categories like gender, race, and class are best understood as overlapping and mutually constitutive rather than isolated and distinct. The point of intersectionality is to analyze all of these types of discrimination and come up with ways of remedying them. Sometimes that means social change, but that's another topic of discussion, obviously, for another time.
There are also different definitions of feminism depending on the thought process that you follow. I found that Bell Hooks' definition of feminism from her book, Feminist Theory, From Margin to Center, best fits with Crenshaw's concept of intersectionality. Um, the first quote here, feminism is the struggle to end sexist depression. Its aim is not to benefit solely any specific group of women, any particular race or class of women. It does not privilege women over men. It has the power to transform in a meaningful way all our lives. Most importantly, feminism is neither a lifestyle nor a ready-made identity or role one can step into. I really like that. Um, that's something I would like to look into further, especially when it comes to girl boss feminism. Um, her second quote here is, when feminism is defined in such a way that it calls attention to the diversity of women's social and political reality, it centralizes the experiences of all women. The women, especially the women whose social conditions have been least written about, studied, or changed by political movements. Um, this is especially applicable to the Ripper victims, um, given that they were poor women. When we study the, this case, we want to look at it from a perspective that encompasses the realities that they faced and poverty really was one of the big realities that they faced um and in the past feminism or at least mainstream feminism has not been the best when it comes to um, recognizing the needs of poor women that in mind how do we use intersectionality to gain a better understanding of our past this is done through the application of intersectional history Ellen C. Schaffner, Albert J. Mills, and Jean Helms Mills defined this term in their paper, Intersectional History, Exploring Intersectionality Over Time. Intersectional history is the merging of intersectionality and the study of the past to create a framework for considering traces of the past in a way that centers marginalized identities. Essentially, this involves looking at history from a bottom-up perspective when looking at how different people are placed within the societal hierarchy. You're basically looking at how systems of power and privilege affect the people at the bottom of this hierarchy. By studying the lives of marginalized people and understanding how their intersectional identities affected their lives, we can gain perspective on different people's experiences. In some cases, the lives and experiences of people at the bottom of the societal hierarchy haven't even been studied before. Think of all the new information we can gather just by looking at how these different people lived and what they experienced. Eve Galanis provides further information on how we can apply intersectionality to our study of history. As she states here, in many ways, intersectional history is the history of power through the lens of marginalized people. There are some key points that historians need to keep in mind as they conduct their research. Focus on simultaneous oppressions is the first point. Number two, the goal of understanding and reinterpreting history from the social locations of marginalized people. Number three, a recognition and interest of, in women of color's agency. Number four, attention in the role of the state and the interrelations between colonialism, racism, and gender in women of color's lives. Um, just one quick point here. You might be asking why all this emphasis on women of color. Um, Galanis provides the example of women of color since intersectionality has its roots in black feminism. We have to remember that in colonized places, women of color were often at the bottom of the societal hierarchy. Um, I would expand on Galanis's points here to say that they could apply to any marginalized person, such as the Ripper victims. They were poor women. Um, 
they were marginalized in their own way too. So we are going to look a little further into that in just a few minutes. With that in mind, how do we apply these concepts when analyzing the lives of the victims? We'd start by parsing out their intersectional identities. What's going on with each of these women that contributes to their marginalization in late Victorian London? In looking at the canonical five, we can come up with a host of different overlapping intersectional identities. The first one is quite obvious. They were all women who had fewer rights and occupied a lower position in the social hierarchy than men did. They were working class to lower class than desperately poor. They were single, widowed, or separated from their husbands. This meant that they had to find ways to support themselves. Um, and many times as women, they were not paid as much in their jobs as men were. They were unhoused or their housing situations were unstable. Some of them also suffered from physical sickness or chronic conditions. This especially applies to Annie Chapman and her lung ailment, which I think was tuberculosis. Um, Elizabeth Stride's case of syphilis or similar VD, even Catherine Eddowes with her undiagnosed Bright's disease. Addiction to alcohol and possible mental illness are also things we need to consider. Elizabeth Stride herself was an immigrant, and both Mary Jane Kelly and Elizabeth Stride were displaced from their native countries. Kelly due to the conditions caused by British colonization of Ireland and along with Stride due to economic difficulties. All of these identities and the forms of oppression that come with them affected each victim's lives in their own ways. But poverty had the largest impact on their lives. Um, you know, to further examine poverty and some of these other things that are going on, I pulled some passages from Hallie Rubenhold's book and some other work to show examples of different perspectives of how um, poverty affected the victims. So first we're going to take a look at this particular quote from Hallie Rubenhold's book, The Five, dealing with the effects of poverty on the victims. Lodging houses provided shelter for a wide variety of women facing an assortment of unfortunate circumstances. While some resorted to what has been called casual prostitution, it is categorically wrong to assume that all of them did so. Most took on poorly paid casual labor, doing cleaning and laundering, or hawking goods. Generally, they supplemented the little money they earned by borrowing, begging, pawning, and sometimes stealing. Pairing up with a male partner also played an essential role in defraying costs. The second passage I want to look at is from Kathleen Forrest's 2012 paper, Early and Mid-Victorian Attitudes Toward Victorian Working Class Prostitution, with a special focus on London. So as you can see, this would definitely be related to um, Ripper studies. And, um, you know, it, I think it provides a lot of context into the victims' lives, especially this particular passage. For notes that many working class women had to find their place in the labor market in restricted and low paid fields, but they were soon confronted to economic and social problems for those worrisome jobs were very lightly paid. As a consequence, they could not afford basic decent living conditions with so small earnings. As a consequence, the poorest working girls chose the only alternative given to them in order to survive, prostitution. Therefore, their entry into the trade of prostitution can be apprehended as circumstantial rather than premeditated and a response to local conditions of the urban job market. Most of these circumstantial prostitutes seemed to be in a distressing situation and needed money to sustain the lowest living conditions offered to them. 
this is how they were, redu were reduced to this part-time job. Um, so basically, this is just saying that um, in addition to the odd jobs mentioned by Rubenhold, prostitution was often considered to be um, a last resort, but it was something that you took on if you didn't want to starve or sleep in the streets. Um, people did these things just to survive. Um, I also did check the bibliography of Rubenhold's book, The Five. This paper was not listed in it, though it would have been available to Rubenhold at the time she was gathering her sources and conducting her research. Um, I have no idea of why this was not used, but um, I think that's a question that only she could answer. Following passages are from Catherine Crooks's paper, Jack the Ripper's Unfortunate Victims, Prostitution is Vagrancy, 1888-1890. Uh, just before I start, Linda Need, whom Crooks refers to here, she wrote the book Victorian Babylon. If anyone has read it, um, please let me know because I am considering whether or not to get it. Um, but moving forward, as Linda Need observes, the 19th century prostitute was not only a gendered figure, she was a casual laborer. The realities of class and labor that needs comment encapsulates are less often fully recognized among subsequent Victorian gender historians. The Victorian capitalist market underpinned late 19th century prostitution and shaped the way prostitutes and their peers perceived sex work as precisely that, a form of work. The second one, Victorian's conflation of lower class or vagrant prostitutes with the men who also engaged in unconventional and irregular forms of work, suggests that Victorian prostitution might be reconceptualized not only as a gendered and pathologized form of sexual deviance, but also as a partially normalized form of labor. And thirdly, women who engaged in sex work did so for practical and financial reasons that were certainly shaped by their gender identities, but are not reducible to those identities. The Ripper victims and the group of low-end prostitutes from which they are drawn, therefore, should be considered as members of the working poor, taking part in a makeshift economy of casual laborer. These socioeconomic realities have, however, been de-emphasized by gender historians in favor of an overemphasis on the Victorian cultural myth of the fallen woman. So we have a few things going on here. Um, Crooks is basically saying that there were two different attitudes between the middle class and the working class when it came to sex work. The middle class honestly believed that um, the working class had a different set of values from them. Um, they believed that um, prostitution was a great social evil and that women who engaged in it definitely gave up a part of their femininity when that happened. Um, they also believed that conditions in some of these working class neighborhoods, um, poor sanitation, um, you know, overcrowding in rooms where a lot of kids were exposed to um, their parents, you know, being intimate with one another. These were things that led people into prostitution. Um, the working class, however, had a much better understanding of it. They understood that um, because so many jobs were so low paying and that sometimes women especially would have to rely on prostitution to make ends meet. Um, this was something that a lot of women ended up doing. Um, and I think even when we look at the inquest notes, when we, you know, it, when Polly Nichols and Annie Chapman and the others are discussed, 
they do say, oh yes, you know, like they did engage in prostitution. That's what they had to do. But it wasn't a good or a bad thing. It was just a thing. Um, and we also have to remember that, you know, at the time, the Ripper victims, they were, in their mind, they would have been working. Yes, they might not have necessarily enjoyed what they had to do to make money, but they understood that, okay, I have to do this thing in order to get the money that I need to be able to survive and get my needs met. They had no clue that the individual who killed them was going to do this. Um, they were just going to do their thing and then move on. Um, it It's just really very different um, how crooks and far look at the Ripper victims compared to Ruben Hold. Um, and I'm going to move on to Ruben Hold next, but before I do that, I just wanted to say that Crooks' paper did come out in 2015. I did find this in 2021, um, in fall 2021, after an exhaustive Google search. And I also found that it had been posted back in 2015 on the JTR forums, but it was hidden way back in the archives. So I do believe that Ruben Hold would have had access to this paper as well back when she was gathering her sources and conducting her research. Again, why she did not use this paper, I can't say. That's a question that only she could answer. Just a few more passages from Rubenhold um, as counterpoints to Farr's and Crooks's work. Um, this is the first one. In the absence of any evidence that Polly, Annie, and Kate had ever engaged in common prostitution, many have taken to claiming that these women participated in casual prostitution, a blanket term cast over the ambiguities of the women's lives that is steeped in moral judgment. It ascribes guilt by association because a woman was poor and an alcoholic, because she left her children, because she had committed adultery, because she had children out of wedlock, because she lived in a lodging house, because she was no longer attractive, because she didn't have a settled home, because she begged, because she slept rough, because she broke all of the rules of what it meant to be feminine. This line of reasoning also explains why Polly, Annie, and Kate's homelessness was entirely overlooked as a factor in their murders. A houseless creature and a prostitute by their moral failings were one and the same. Um, I definitely disagree with this. Um, completely disagree with this, but we'll get to why in a minute. So this is the second passage that Reuben Hold has um, written about the victims. Insisting that Jack the Ripper killed prostitutes also makes the story of a series of vicious murders slightly more palatable. Just as it did in the 19th century, the notion that the victims were only prostitutes perpetuates the belief that there are good women and bad women, Madonnas and whores. It suggests that there is an acceptable standard of female behavior and those who deviate from it are fit to be punished. Equally, it reasserts the double standard exonerating men from wrongs committed against such women. These attitudes may not feel as prevalent as they were in 1888, but they persist. They may not be expressed freely in general conversation, rather they have been integrated subtly into the fabric of our cultural norms. The threads become apparent in court cases and in politics. They are found interwoven in the statements of the powerful. One thing that I find interesting here is that um, Ruben Holt does mention poverty. She does mention addiction. She does mention homelessness. However, it seems that the biggest thing that she is centering on is gender. Um, that is something that is a huge problem because there was a lot more going on with the victims than just their gender. It was a whole bunch of things that led to 
them um, being where they were at at the time they were killed. And it, these things were not necessarily their fault at all. So what three questions should we be considering after we read these passages? The first, does Hallie Rubenholtz's book, The Five, provide a well-rounded look into the lives and the realities of the victims and their circumstances? Has it really done more for women's history than any other book, as Janina Ramirez states? More importantly, is Hallie Rubenholtz's book, The Five, a work of intersectional feminism? To answer the first question, I don't believe that Rubenholtz's book provides a well-rounded look into the victims' lives. While it's good that she produced a victim-centered work from a feminist point of view, I believe that she has conducted her research and built her conclusions through the lens of a middle to upper class white woman with an impressive education. Interestingly, this is the same complaint that a lot of people have about Betty Friedan's book, The Feminine Mystique, that it only concerns itself with that same demographic. Mainstream feminism can lead toward concerning itself with the needs of this demographic as well. To answer the second question, I do not believe the work has done more for women's history than any other book, not only because the research and how it is presented are very flawed, but because Rubenhold did not put aside her own identity as an educated middle-class woman while conducting said research. This is especially apparent in the chapters detailing the married lives of Polly Nichols and Annie Chapman and the possible youth of Mary Jane Kelly. Rubenhold seems to assume that Nichols and Chapman wished to emulate middle-class housewives while running their households. It is even more apparent when she details her theories about Mary Jane Kelly's origins as a woman from a middle to upper middle class family. In reality, it is more likely that Kelly and her family were displaced from Ireland due to the conditions there and that she grew up in poverty. Unfortunately, Reuben Holt, for whatever reason, didn't check her identity and experiences at the door while conducting her research. This blinded her to the realities of the victims' lives and experiences and affected her work. This brings us to the third question. Is Hallie Rubenhold's book, The Five, a work of intersectional feminism? There's really not a clear answer to this. Instead of a solid yes or no, I would say yes, but. I would not consider Rubenhold's book to be a work of intersectional feminism, but I would consider it to be a work of ornamental intersectionality. Surma Bills coined this term, and her definition of it is as follows. Intersectionality has been transformed by the confluence between neoliberal corporate diversity culture and identity politics in the last 15 years and has acquired undeniable intellectual, political, and moral capital, which proved to be a fertile ground for opportunistic uses of intersectionality that I have dubbed ornamental intersectionality. It would be misleading to consider ornamental intersectionality as benign for it is part and parcel of the neutralization, even active disarticulation of radical politics and social justice. Its superficial deployment of intersectionality undermines intersectionality's credibility and potentials for addressing interlocking power structures and developing an ethics of non-oppressive coalition building and claims making. Similar to routine declarations of commitment to equity and diversity, ornamental intersectionality allows institutions and individuals to accumulate value through good public relations and rebranding without the need to actually address the underlying structures that produce and sustain injustice. In a way, Reuben Hull did research and write the five through an intersectional lens. She did explore how misogyny and socioeconomic issues of the era affected the victims, but she didn't pay equal attention to all of these. Instead of examining how all of these issues overlapped and intersected, she chose to center misogyny and gender as the biggest obstacles the victims faced and proposed that these were the main reasons why they were targeted. This is problematic because in paying more attention to how the victims were oppressed due to their sex and gender, she ignores the other things going on in their lives that contributed to their plight.
to sum up and to provide some food for thought, here's a quote from Melissa Jura Grant on sex work and mainstream feminism. We must redraw the lines of the prostitution debate. Sex workers are tired of being invited to publicly investigate the politics of their own lives only if they're also willing to serve as a prop for someone else's politics. As editor of the influential anthology, Horace and Other Feminists, Jill Nagel writes, one could argue that the production of feminist discourse around prostitution by non-prostitutes alienates the laborer herself from the process of her own representation. Not only are sex workers in the abstract used to aid feminists in giving voice to the voiceless, those same feminists then remain free to ignore the content of sex workers' actual speech. When sex workers are cast in this role as mute icon or service instrument, it's the anti-prostitution camp at work, decrying sex workers' situation yet abandoning them to the fundamentally passive role that they insist sex workers occupy in prostitution. So where do we go from here? So now that we've examined all of this, where do we go from here? If we're approaching study of the victims' lives through an intersectional feminist lens, can we still use Reuben Holt's book as a source, even though it is more reflective of mainstream feminism than it is intersectional feminism? I would say yes, it's a good place to start, but we should also be looking at work from scholars like Barr and Crooks and reparologists like Paul Begg and Philip Sugden to get a full understanding of the victims' circumstances and how they live their lives. Despite what she might believe, Reuben Hull's book is not the be-all end-all when it comes to scholarship about the victims, simply because books can only cover a limited amount of material and because new information or new interpretations of information that we already have can come out at any time. To effectively study the victims through an intersectional feminist lens, we need to take into account all of the information that we have so we can understand how the different facets of each of these women's identities affected their lives.